join me, if you would, in your Bibles in the chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews. We do want to welcome everybody this morning, um, especially those who are visiting. We, we are thankful that you're here and trust that the service has already been a blessing to you and that as we open up God's Word, that He'll give us receptive hearts and, uh, and ready minds to receive what He has for us and um, to be able to to grow and, and to learn from his word. We're going to read the same text that we read uh, last week, and I just felt compelled of the Lord to, to address uh, further a few things in this passage of Scripture because they just seem to be prominent. And last week we kind of did almost a, a flyover view of a lot of things that are in there. And I wanted to just uh, focus in a little bit this morning on um, how the new covenant looks at sin, because uh, this passage really deals with that in a thorough way, and um, try to unfold that for us. So if you'll join with me, we'll begin in verse 15 of Hebrews 9. The Bible says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, or for the purpose of, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And I just stop there and make a comment about last week's message. Last week, we just focused on the fact that the new covenant's purpose is that we might have this inheritance. And that's what the Lord desires for us. The greatest way to honor God within the new covenant is to live in the new covenant. It's to live in the freedom that the new covenant brings. It's to live in the forgiveness. It's to live in the grace. It's to live in the joy. It's to live in those things that Christ provided for us. That's the greatest way that we can exalt Christ. It's not to obey a list of rules and regulations in our life. It's to live in the covenant. It's to live out that covenant. What, what has God done for us? And, and, and he did it so that we could have all of these eternal promises and this eternal inheritance. And then the challenge to us, we ask ourselves the question, how, how, I guess the challenge from last week is how well are we living in that covenant? How well are we living in peace and joy and forgiveness? And is that really a, a pattern in our life? So it just, it's just really important to capture the whole new covenant and all that's associated with it. We talked about all the sacrifices and all the things that, that Christ fulfilled to bring it about, right? All of that blood on that, on that day of atonement, and Christ is that atonement, all of that is so that you might have this new covenant and that you might live in it and you might live through it. And uh, just, it, it, the Lord is good, amen? And the Lord is good when things are not good. The Lord is good when things are difficult. The Lord is good when things are challenging. The Lord is always good. What's neat about the new covenant, what's neat about the covenants of the Lord is that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our difficulties are, no matter what our trials and tribulations are, we can know this, that God is always good, isn't he? Amen. And we can trust that and we can live in that. So I really wanted to just, just recapture for a moment that, that all of the all of the price and all of the work that Christ went through on, um, in the redemption of his people was so that we might have these inheritances. We might have this inheritance and that we might live in it. 
So let's not stop there. Um, we're going to go on and read the rest. So I want you to, if you have a highlighter, if you have a pen, if you're making notes or whatever, I just want you to note in your mind or whatever, all of the terms, all of the times death and blood are used through the rest of this text. Because that's really going to be our focal, our foundation for um, how the new covenant deals with sin. So we'll start at the end of verse 15. He says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the, new, under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And just make a note that blood and death are just simply interchangeable terms here. He's not talking about the necessity of physical blood, but he's just making it uh, a parallel to death using the term blood so that we get a deeper appreciation for the extent of Christ's death. Okay, we like to think about dying that whole, you know, it's like, Lord, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid of how I'm going to die. Right? I'm afraid of the process of dying. I think the reason why we have this word interchanged here is because, because Christ's death was not an easy death. It was not a painless death. It, it was a bloody death. It was a, a, a difficult death. It was a horrendous death. And I think that that's a reason why we have this word interchanged here, blood and death, because Christ sacrificed to purchase a covenant, to purchase a people for himself, was a, was, a bit, was a difficult death. He paid an ultimate price. So just notice that, if you will, as we go through. Verse 19, for, when they, um, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, indeed, note this, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So again, what he's saying here is simply, in the old covenant, everything from the tents to the vessels, everything was sprinkled with blood for the sake of, of, of making it sacred. So that blood being sprinkled on it. So you have these normal elements, uh, uh, man-made elements, if you will. Um, very precious elements, very important elements, but you have man-made elements. You have a man-made tent, you have man-made furniture. And so the sprinkling of the blood would set that apart. It would make it sacred. So now it would be, it would be used to glorify and honor God. I mean, it's an important picture to understand because we also are just human beings, Right? We really have nothing to offer God in and of ourselves, but once we've been sprinkled with that blood, or once we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we become sacred. We become an object through which God glorifies himself in the same way that he did in the Old Testament in the furniture of the temple. When he sprinkled it with the blood, it became sacred. And when we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ and uh, not just sprinkled, but like baptized into it, right? When we're baptized into the blood of Jesus Christ, that makes us sacred. We become important in God's eyes. We become a worshiper of the Lord, and that, it, it, because of that sacrifice and because of that blood, we become 
somebody or something that can worship him. Verse 23, for it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now it was to offer... Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Now just notice that, remember, we talked about the old covenant is an earthly expression of the new covenant. The new covenant truly takes place where? The new covenant takes place in heaven. All of the things that are taking place are, it's a, so, so we have this picture in the Bible, in the Old Testament, all this covenant, all these sacrifices and ceremonies that are taking place, and, and, and the same thing is happening in heaven at a, at a, at a different level. And, and God is coveting with Christ, who is the God-man, and we become the beneficiaries of that. There's this divine interaction taking place that, that we, we can't understand or grasp we, we can't get our, our small minds around it, but there's this divine interaction that's taking place that we benefit from. And that divine interaction is thousands of years ago, God said, I'm going to give you an expression of it. And he gave, him, gave us the Old Testament. It was almost like a blueprint. Here, here's a blueprint for what I'm doing in heaven. And what mankind did is mankind was, was, was responsible to try to carry out that blueprint And ultimately, the old covenant led to us realizing that we can't, right? So this is all going on in heaven, and heaven is where the real is. And the earthly covenant is simply a manifestation of the real covenant, of the the covenant that cannot be broken, the covenant that doesn't depend upon us, but depends wholly on him. So this is taking place in heaven. I believe I'm in verse 28 or verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ's sacrifice was a one-time sacrifice. The, the Son of God and the Son of Man um, putting forth himself to pay for man to pay for man's sin. He was, he was fully man as a representation of, of man to God. Okay, Think about this. And, and the question's been asked, you know, why did it have to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die for mankind's sins? Because, because Jesus Christ was fully man representing us to God, and he was fully God representing God to us. So there's dual representation taking place here. God is fully man, and he represents us to God, and he dies on our behalf. He is fully God representing God to us, and he comes to this earth, and he manifests God to us. So this is why it's necessary, and not only that, but he also is the one who administers the covenant. He goes on to say in verse 27, for just as it is, and just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
In the end there, it just, it just ultimately says the ultimate, the ultimate inheritance that we're looking forward to is not of this earth either. While there are inheritances that we experience at Christ's death, which is forgiveness, there are inheritances that are experienced at Christ's intercession or his resurrection, which is righteousness. There is this ultimate inheritance that we're all looking forward to, and that is the resurrection of us. That is where we stand before God one day and we experience his glory. And 1 John tells us in chapter number 3 that we will actually be in his image. We will see him as he is because we will be like him. This is difficult to understand or comprehend, but it's important to, to, um, to, to acknowledge by faith, to accept by faith. Just, just another comment, and we'll get into our, our thoughts this morning. It's important to notice in verse 27, and I've heard this verse quoted on a number of occasions and really almost never heard it within the context. Everybody always says, so it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And we think of that, and we, we often say that to people because we want to prove that everybody has an appointment to die. And, and that's true. We all have an appointment to die, and we then have to stand before God. But truly, this is just an expression of what Christ has done. It's an illustration of what Christ has done. That he has not only died, but he has faced God's wrath. He has faced God's judgment. He's saying, so, he's saying, and just like it is appointed unto man who wants to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ. So Christ has carried out that that event there, and it's just an expression. It's a, it's a figure of speech so that we'll understand exactly what Christ went through. In his death, he faced, he faced God's wrath, he faced God's judgment in a complete way. He faced God's judgment in a full way, a full expression, a, a full pouring out of God's wrath on Jesus Christ. He experienced that for us. So what I want to do is I want, to, I want I'd like to spend some time this morning honing in on how God in the new covenant deals with sin, and uh, and what what is what is how does the new covenant view sin? What has been done to our sin? And we'll we'll, we'll unfold that here in a minute. Let me pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the time this morning that we've already had just singing praises to you. Uh, you're worthy of those praises. And far, you're far more worthy even of the praises that we can offer. We thank you that you receive our praise with grace and mercy. We ask that you would come now and teach us, that you would come and encourage us, that you would come and challenge us, that we might know you and know you better and, and just be more conformed to the image of your Son I pray that this would be a moment of humility for all of us, that we would know that this is about you and not about us, that you would remove all hindrances, that you would remove all of those evil thoughts, uh, spirits of, of discontentment or critical spirits and uh, spirits of self and those voices that go on around us that cause us to think about all of the things that we're going through right now in life and May, may this just be a, a season, Lord God, a short season where we can just put all of those things aside and just hear from you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would accomplish that for your glory and by your grace in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
When I was a child, our church had a special Sunday for kids. All of the kids at the church on this special Sunday were given the opportunity to ride on a helicopter. And that's pretty cool, right? And we had a we had a bus ministry there at our church, and so we would bus in a, a number of kids. And on that special day, you were they were going to serve lunch after church, and then all the kids were going to get taken to this helicopter, and they were going to get to ride on this helicopter. And it was going to be an all-day event. And um, I remember like it was yesterday, because there's a part of it that I'll probably never forget. We were told by our teacher that we were supposed to go immediately go to lunch after we were done with our Sunday school class and eat lunch, and then there would be a bus that would pick us up, and we would all go over to this helicopter, and we would all get rides on this helicopter. If you know me well enough, you know that I don't have a lot of patience when it comes to exciting things, and so I would have thought to myself, I don't really need to eat lunch. I will skip lunch, and I will go immediately and get in the front of the line at the helicopter pad, and I will be the first one on the helicopter, right? It's it's good thinking, right? So I can remember, I mean, honestly, I can remember this like it was yesterday. I got on that bus, and we got taken over to the helicopter pad, and we were sitting there waiting for them to start start, uh, taking us off the bus, and I remember my teacher walking onto the bus and looking at me and saying, ended up, got take, ended up getting taken back to the church, and I did not get to ride on the helicopter because I had disobeyed the instructions that were given to me in regards to the process that I was supposed to go to to ride that helicopter. I don't forget that because I've never been able to ride on a helicopter. <laughs> that is like... Fresh, it is like fresh in my mind that, that that day I could have ridden a helicopter and now I have never been able to ride that helicopter at all. It's kind of like that whole Genesis 3 where God sends a constant reminder of our sin, right? So the curse on men and the curse on women, men sweating and women having pain in childbirth is that constant reminder of, of that. So whenever I see a helicopter, it's a constant reminder that I'm a sinner, Right? <laughs> So it's interesting, though, when you think about that story, I, I was disobedient. I was told that here's the pattern that I had to, to follow. I would get to ride the helicopter. That was a part of the blessing of the day. But I was told there was this pattern that had to be followed in order for me to be able to ride on that helicopter. And because of disobedience, because of my unwillingness to submit to the plan that was set in front of me, I was not able to ride on that helicopter. And the reality of it is, no matter how badly that teacher wanted to let me ride that helicopter, and I imagine that she did, if she's like me at all, I imagine that she would have loved to have let me ride on that helicopter. But no matter how badly she wanted to let me ride on that helicopter, she could not let me ride on that helicopter because I had disobeyed the rules. If she would have let me ride on that helicopter, then everybody in that bus would have said, well, we don't have to obey the rules. The rules don't matter. And then disobedience would have been something that would have become prominent amongst them because the discipline was necessary to say that obedience is important and obedience is necessary for the blessing to come. I tell you this story, this simple um, testimony of my life so that you can know me a little bit better and laugh with me. But ultimately, I want you to think about it from God's perspective. I want you to think about it from God's perspective. This is simply an illustration of the fact that God 
has made, has set forth a standard, has given us a law. All the way back in the book of Genesis, he told Adam and Eve, you cannot eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the uh, tree of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat of this tree. And, and Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, and they, and they defied God. They denied God. They refused to obey God. They refused to submit to God. And, and the Bible says that he promised them in that moment that if they ate of that tree, that they would surely die. And it was in that moment that death begins. Immediately after that, in Genesis chapter number 3, God kills the first animals. He clothes Adam and Eve in animal skin, which is a sign of substitution, where the Lord deals with their sins through substitution. And, and, but he also, they also, Adam and Eve, begin the process of dying. They start the process of, of decay. They start the process of death. And we see that in their first two sons with Cain and Abel and, and one uh, killing the other one. Because of our sins, we are, we are left out of the inheritance. Because of our sins, we are rejected by, we are rejected by God. We are, we are, the Bible says we are at enemy, enemies of God. We are at war with God because we have disobeyed him. And, and sometimes that's hard to, to understand and comprehend because we almost look at God as this, this unfair and unjust person who would be angry with a people who we view ourselves as being right and good and always submissive. The reality is, is that's not true. The reality of it is, is that we're the ones that are the enemies of God. We're the ones that have sinned against God. We're the ones that have denied his word and defied his name. And it's not just that we defied his name and denied his word. In Genesis chapter number three, the reality of it is, is we deny his name and defy his word daily. Even believers do that on a daily basis. We deny the name of the Lord. We, we sin throughout the day and we say no to the Lord and we say yes to the flesh. Anybody in here struggle with that like me? It's a, it's a constant thing that we deal with. And God does not overlook our sins. God cannot overlook our sins. There must be discipline given in order for there to be inheritance given. In order for there to be blessing given, that sin, every sin that you commit and every sin that I commit and every sin that Adam and Eve committed and every sin that everybody committed from that point forward has to be dealt with in a just and holy and righteous way. Otherwise, sin will be rampant in that no one will expect or uh, anticipate justice. In addition to that, when justice does come, people will say that God is not fair in that justice which in many ways is where we're at today in our culture. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 6. Or just turn to Romans 3. I will quote Romans 6. The Bible says that in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. So the payment for our sin, our defiance, our, de our rebellion against God all the way back in, in Adam's time to this day, the punishment for sin is death. It doesn't matter if you commit a thousand sins or if you commit one sin. According to James, the Bible says that when we break God's law, we, when we break one part of God's law, we break all of God's law. Okay, let me illustrate that for you for a moment. Just imagine that the term that's used in Scripture is it's the law of God. When we think of the Ten Commandments, we want to break it down into the laws of God, right? Right? 
So it's like 10 laws of God. The issue is, is it's not 10 laws of God, it's one law of God. And it's captured in these 10 things. It's captured in, in that time, and really not just those 10 things, but hundreds of things all throughout the Bible are, are capturing God's law for mankind. Even when you go back to Genesis chapter number um, 1 and 2, when God said, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the garden, that is God's law, right? So that's like we think of it, well, they only broke one of God's laws, No, the reality of it is that is the same as God's law that is in Exodus, that is the Ten Commandments. Because it's ultimately saying submission to me, not submitting to me as God, living in rebellion is the breaking of God's law. And here's how it can be be manifested. So we all fall, we all fall prey to that. We all live in that in our in our daily lives. And, And God cannot and will not overlook that because. He is a holy and just God. Look at what Romans 3 tells us in verse 21. For now the righteousness of God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his, what's the word there? By his blood, and blood is interchangeable with what other word? By his death. So you see that the, the, there's some significant terms used in this passage of scripture, number one is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is important when it comes to mankind's salvation. God cannot offer salvation to mankind without first dealing with sin. God will not forgive sin that has not been dealt with, that has not been paid, that his wrath has not been satisfied towards. So his righteousness is important. Uh, he, uh, Romans 9 talks about God having a desire to show his wrath, having a desire to show his justice so that when he shows his grace, when he shows his mercy, it will be amazing. If you imagine for a moment, imagine a hundred guilty parties standing before a judge, a hundred guilty parties, they've all committed the same crime and that crime is a very horrible and heinous crime. And those hundred people stand before that judge and they walk before him. And and the first 99 of them get off. He says, you know what? You can go free and you can go free and you can go free and you can go free. 99 of them get to walk free. And the last one, he says, you know what? You have been sentenced to to the highest of punishments for this crime. What would that person think? God is unfair. Is the judge unfair in that situation? No, because every one of them is guilty. So for him to let one go free is not unfair. But when he lets 99 go free and then condemns one, it seems unfair, doesn't it? Now let's turn that scenario around backwards. Imagine the same 100 people standing before him, and the first 99 he condemns and gives them the ultimate punishment. And then you stand before him, and he says, you come, you're mine. Not only am I going to forgive what you've done, but I'm going to change and transform you. What is your attitude going to be towards that judge? Honestly. 
You're going to be Ephesians chapter number one to the praise of his glorious grace, aren't you? You're going to fall down in front of him and worship him because he has set you free on the backdrop of judging all of those others. Justice is so important and so valuable to God because it is truly the greatest backdrop to the display of his mercy and his grace. We're a culture that lives in this idea of the first 99 being set free and God has brought judgment or condemnation on one and we call them unfair. We should be the generation that looks at God's grace and mercy and says, why me, God? Why would you show me mercy and grace when you have condemned so many? Why would you set me free? But this is not our attitude, is it? This is not our heart. We have a heart of We have a heart of deserving. We have a a heart that says, you owe us. We do not have a heart of praise and worship for all of God's goodness and favors. The fact that we breathe is a very, very favor of God. It's a mercy and a grace. He says, in verse, uh, back down here, um, uh, Romans 3, verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's kindness. Is that what it says? This was to show God's righteousness. So all that he did, the way that he deals with sin, the way, that he, the way that he deals with redemption, the way that he saves mankind is to be a display of his righteousness. And in addition to that, you go to, to Ephesians 1, it is to display his mercy and grace. He goes on to say, it is to show God's righteousness, but in, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. Now get this, has he passed over former sins? It says that he has, and from a very practical perspective, we would say that he's passed over former sins. But if you just go back a verse or two, what do you see? You see blood, don't you? So that sins that he's passing over, are they truly being passed over in the sense that they are not being paid for? No, he is passing over our sins. Even today, he is passing over my sins, not on the basis of an, in, of an unjust judge. He is passing over my sins on the basis of what? On the basis of the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that is the basis for our deliverance. The Bible goes on to say it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, important that God is just, and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So at the same time, he might be just and forgive. You're familiar with 1 John 1 and verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, right, to forgive. Let's skip over that. He is faithful to forgive, amen? Isn't that good to know? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. But it doesn't say that. It's not, doesn't ca- that doesn't capture the whole thing. He is faithful and, and just. God's justice is equally important to him as his faithfulness to forgive. And for those of us who embrace Christ by faith, we experience that forgiveness. We experience that passing over our sins. Not on the basis that we deserve it, but on the basis of it being paid for already fully. This is the new covenant. 
The new covenant is that God will forgive our sins. God will forget our sins. God will pass over our sins, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of what Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. That he might be just and the one who can justify. In other words, that he might be just and he might forgive. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's not logical. It's not logical. It's biblical. It's not logical. That's okay, isn't it? Because we walk by, we walk by faith and not by sight. If you will join me, one other passage of scripture, then we'll dwell in our text in the book of Leviticus. In the all the way in the Old Testament, the very beginning of your Bibles, Leviticus chapter number sixteen. So the scripture that we're going to read, that we read this morning already, is is um, is the most I, w- I would call it the most extensive detail regarding God's dealing with sin in re- in relation to restoring our relationship or our fellowship with Him. How does God deal with our sins in restoring us into fellowship with Him? And He uses five terms in our text that we'll look at this morning. Five different terms to describe what God does with our sins. What has God done with our sins? He uses these five terms. And these five terms are related to, remember we're comparing Old Covenant, New Covenant in our text. Um, So these five terms are related to what's called the scapegoat in the Bible. It's found in Leviticus chapter number 16. And I'm just going to read a few verses here with with you. The Bible, this is the uh, day of atonement. This is the day of sacrifice, the great sacrifice once a year. The Lord would... The high priest would bring in that sacrifice to satisfy God temporarily, um, partially, if you will, for the people of Israel. And so here he has, he's going to describe for us what that looks like. Beginning in verse number five, he says, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. And casting lots was just making a decision. It was putting something in uh, the Lord's hands. And we, could, we would compare it here today to like drawing straws. If you were to have a handful of straws in your hand or whatever, toothpicks, and one would be shorter than the other one, and we'd walk around the room and we would see who got the short, you know, the short end of the stick is the, is the term. This is kind of the same idea, except that you were, you were kind of putting it in God's hands, okay? And we're going to cast these lots, and whichever one of these animals it falls on, um, this is the one that God has chosen to be, its, uh, to be his scapegoat. He goes on to say, um, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the, of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall um, present the goat on which the lot fell on the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be set away into the wilderness to Azazel. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining Azazel because there's a lot of different interpretations on who this is. Um, the, um, many believe it was a, 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 an evil, an evil uh, demonic angel, a fallen angel that it was sent out to, to, to bring destruction to this, 
to this animal, um, a picture of us in our sins, a picture of us completely in our sins, utterly in our sins. So, so if you imagine a person almost like hell, in a sense, like hell is the absence of God, the absence of God's presence. It's a place that people go to where God is goodness is not there and therefore is flames and you know, you know the biblical story of it. So this Azazel would be a picture of, this, of, of being given over to the devil. And so he would then take this animal out into the wilderness and he would do what the, do what the devil does, a, a demon would do. He would just bring destruction to it. And so here's the picture. It's so important that we get this. It is meant for us to see what we deserve. But something is going to take our place. Something is going to take the people's place. So if you read on and down in verse number 20 uh, to thereafter, I'm, I'm not going to read it to you because of time, but he talks about that the, the, the Aaron would lay his hands on this, on this other goat that was, or this goat that was not chosen for the Lord, and he would, he would um, figuratively transfer the sins of all the people onto this goat. And then he would send this, he would send this animal into the wilderness and, and ultimately the animal would, would die. And it was a picture of that, of that sin being removed, of the sin being taken out, it being, it being dealt with from a sacrificial standpoint. But, but, it's, but it's beyond that. Just paying for the sins is one thing. That's what the animal that was the, the blood sacrifice did. But, but there was this other sacrifice where the, the goat would be sent into the wilderness and to a desolate place, a, the idea of the terms used here is a, a place of God's um, uh, difficulty. Uh, it's called, the, the, the word means a rough place. God's rough place. So when he sends this animal out there, he's entering into God's rough place. And that's where people who live in sin, that's where they live. They live under that under that. Um, the justice of God. They, uh, John 3 says they live in the wrath of God. And that's what this animal represented. That's what this animal pictured was this, this um, scapegoat. It's taking on himself our sins and then taking them into to the wilderness. And we know, we know the picture is fulfilled in whom? Who is that? Who, is, who fulfills that earthly analogy? Okay, Christ does. He takes on himself our sins. And that's where we're going to go. I'm, I'm going to just talk about, for the remainder of our time, um, these five terms and then give you some practical application to them. Okay, So what does God do with sin in the new covenant? Martin Luther says, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders. And just note these thoughts. Either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you shall be saved. And Thomas Watson said this, where sin is your burden, Christ will be your delight. So five terms that are used in this passage of scripture that really describe God's heart towards a believer. God's heart towards a believer's sin what happens when a person comes to know Christ in regards to their sin? And so there are five terms, and I just want to look at them for a few minutes and, uh, and, and just try to understand them. The first one is, is found in our first verse, in verse 15. It says that he has redeemed, he redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first law. 
So the first term that's used is redemption. And the word to mean, means to be delivered, to be liberated, or to be released. And it's a term that's always built around a payment. Redemption is not just the release of something, but it's the release of something based upon a payment being made. Um, the word redemption uh, has several Greek and even Hebrew words that are translated redemption in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it's usually relating to a slave market. Uh, so you have a slave market where, I mean, I, I don't, I, I hate using analogies like this because they're so difficult in our culture that we live in, but that's the picture that's given in the scripture of a slave market where people are being traded and exchanged and they're being bought and they're being sold. And so you always have, with the idea of redemption, you always have a price being paid for something. Something is being paid, and the word redeem means to, the term literally means to buy something back. So at some point, you owned this possession, it was yours, and you're now buying it, you're purchasing it back. Okay, so just picture, trying to get an analogy that would be helpful, picture Picture going to an auction or going to a, um, going to an auction or going to a, what are those little stores called that's a pawn shop, right? Picture going to a pawn shop and there's all your stuff that just got stolen out of your house last week, right? And you go to the pawn shop and the guy at the pawn shop doesn't care that you think it might be yours. He's still going to want a price to be paid to get that stuff back, right? So if you imagine in your mind uh, with me that we were all Christ. We were all gods. And in the beginning, we were, we were created in his image. We, were, we are in Adam, in, even in his perfect state. And yes, we're with him in his fallen state, but we were with him there. We were, we were all gods, and we, we forsook. We were all gods as a possession. Let me make sure I clarify that. We forsook him in Adam. We forsook him in Adam. When Adam forsook him, he, we, were in Adam's, we were in Adam's loins, and so we participated in that, and we can't blame Adam for it. Yes, Romans 5.12 says, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed to all men, because, what's the next part? Because all have sinned, right? So we can't point our finger at Adam as being the problem, because we're all the problem. A preacher once said, if Adam hadn't done it, I would have. And that's true, because we all, we all suffer from that from that, from sinfulness. So redemption is, to, is something that was the Lord's in the beginning when he created mankind, that, that Adam and Eve were the Lord's and we were his in that, in that representation, Adam representing mankind as a whole, that now he has to buy back something that is really already his. Because we have, we have sold ourselves and the scripture uses the terminology uh, again, I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but we have prostituted ourselves to the devil. That's what Eve did. Eve prostituted herself to the devil. She gave in to his deception. She chose him over the Lord. She chose his way over God's way. She gave herself to him willingly. The devil did not pay any price for Eve. But yet Christ pays the ultimate price to purchase something back from, not from the devil, but to pay a price to God for man. Jesus doesn't pay any price to the devil. The devil doesn't own us. Sin does. And that is the fact that we are in rebellion against God and we are the enemy of God. 
The price is paid to God. That's why the whole picture of the the heavens, the sacrifice being made in heaven and the the offering of the blood being done in heaven and this, this, this relationship being developed in heaven. The devil doesn't own or have anything. He has no right to any of us. If you're a follower of the devil, it's because we willingly follow him, not because he owns us. He has no right to us. We willingly give ourselves over to him. The term here means to be set free, to be liberated uh, based upon a payment or a ransom. If you can think of somebody being kidnapped and a ransom is paid and then they're brought back into the fold, this is the idea of this term. Justice is served and therefore a criminal is released is another way of looking at this term. Um, Somebody comes in and pays the fine for somebody else and therefore that criminal is released. We want to always remember this, that once justice is served, a criminal must be released. Once justice is served, a criminal, it's, it's, a, it's not just a biblical thing, it's a legal thing. Once justice is served, the criminal must be released. And that's true about us. So this is how God views our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ is the full payment for sin. The Bible says in Hebrews that it's one payment for all sins. And remember this, this does not apply to all people. It only applies to those who believe But the issue is that all sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that you've committed that's too significant that God cannot save in Christ. There's no sin. You you could be the Apostle Paul who was a murderer, and Jesus Christ's blood was sufficient to pay for the Apostle Paul's sins. There's no sin that you've committed that Jesus Christ cannot redeem you from. But at the same time, If you do not place your faith in Christ, you are then allowed to pay the price for your own sins, which ultimately ends up in eternal condemnation. We want to know that redemption is sure and secure for all of those who believe in Christ, all of those who place their faith in him. So that's redemption. The first term that's used is redemption. The second term that's used in our text, the Bible says, I believe it's verse, uh, let's see here, let's just look back in our text Um, verse number 22 under the law he says everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins the second term is the term forgiveness and this is a similar term it just means to be also set free to be pardoned this carries with it the idea of the guilt of our sin being removed Um, the term uh, the the dictionary the, the lexicon that I was reading actually says that we are treated as if we never committed the crime we are treated as if we never committed the crime. This word is, is, is a little bit different than the other words that will describe the idea of our sins, um, uh, of Christ literally taking on himself our sins. This does not imply that we're sinless, but it implies, it, it, it ultimately points to how we are treated as sinless. It's, a, it's an, an act of God willingly, lovingly, graciously forgiving somebody who is a sinner. That's what this term describes, setting somebody free, removal of, print, of, of a penalty, uh, setting somebody free. I think of, um, I think of Barabbas in, 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 in the Gospels when Christ Jesus was, was crucified and Barabbas was set free. Barabbas was the most guilty of criminals during that day, but yet, based upon the sacrifice of Christ, Barabbas is, is forgiven, 
and he's set free. It doesn't imply that he was innocent. The absolute opposite would be implied, but he is forgiven for what he has done. Christ Jesus, based upon the sacrifice of Christ, we are forgiven for what we have done. We are forgiven for what we have done. And you can be forgiven this morning from your sins. You can be forgiven from all of the things that you've ever committed based upon the work of Jesus Christ for you. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering needed. Where there is forgiveness, there's no longer an offering needed because the sins have been paid for or been forgiven. The penalty has been removed. There's no longer an offering necessary. Alexander Strouch says it this way, what a mighty power is love that can overcome evil, cover painful memories, forgive, forgo revenge, and arrest resentment. This is what Christ does for us. When he, when he saves us, he, he, he redeems us. He purchases us back for himself. He forgives us for all of the sins that we've ever committed and all of the sins that we will ever commit. The forgiveness is not temporary. The forgiveness is not just present or past. The forgiveness is eternal. It's forever. It's past, present. He paid one, one time for all of sin. The third term that's used to describe this is the um, idea of being put away. And go back to our text here. Um, let's see here, verse 28, for he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin. And this means to disannul, to abolish to cancel sin. This is kind of an interesting term and an interesting idea that when Christ Jesus died, he not only forgives our sins, he not only redeems us or purchases us back from the slave market of sin, but the Bible says that he, he disannuls our sins. He abolishes or he cancels our sin. The power of sin in our lives, the condemnation of sin, the judgment of sin is removed because sin is removed, sin is canceled. And how is sin canceled? How can, how can the author say that our sins are put away? In the same way that that, that, that animal had this, this figurative trans, transition of taking our sins off of us and putting, him, putting them on him, right? This is a figurative picture. They're being taken off of us and put onto him, and he's being sent away bearing our sins, Right? This is what Christ Jesus has done for us. He hasn't just forgiven us and redeemed us, but he has taken our sins off of us, right? And he has put them on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin for us. He took it off of us and he put it on himself. How does he do this? How does God cancel sin? God cancels sin by fulfilling the law. He cancels sin by canceling the law. The law has no more power over us once we are in Christ. The law has no more say over us. Once the law is satisfied on our behalf, we are now set free from sin. 
If there is no law, there is no... It's, it's, it, that is logical, right? If I go down to the Autobahn and there's no speed limit there, I can drive how fast? I can drive as fast as I want, right? Because there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no sin. And Christ Jesus has set us free from the law. He has removed it. He has annulled it based upon his fulfilling it and satisfying it and then living inside of us. He has put it away. Romans 6.14 says we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Hebrews 7 verse 18 says, for, for on the one hand, a former commandment or the law has been set aside. It's been removed because of its weakness and uselessness. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us. He canceled the law against us. He canceled the record against us. How did he do it? He did it by bearing it for us. He has put away the law. He has completed the law. He has satisfied the law so that there is no law against us. Let me go on. The fourth term used here is born. He has borne our sins. This just means to carry. If you can picture, if you can picture on the day of atonement, the high priest carrying that animal into the uh, into the holy of holies and that sacrifice being made, that animal, a picture of our sins, that he carries that into the holy of holies. The Bible refers to here by this term that Jesus Christ has borne, he has carried our sins for us. He has carried them to the altar. Where do we hear this in other passages of scripture? I think Isaiah 53 is probably the most well-known passage that he bore our iniquities. He carried our sins. He carried them to the altar. How many times? Once. For how long? Forever. The last word that's used here is handled. He says at the end of the text, he says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So he says he's not going to deal with sins the second time. Implication is, is that he deals with sins the first time. And this is an interesting word. It just simply means that he's going to be, he's going to be absent of sin. He's going to come back. So the, the picture is this. He comes the first time. He deals with sins fully and satisfactorily. And he's going to come back the second time without sin. Meaning he's not coming back to, about sin. He's coming back about salvation. He has dealt with sin. I like the word handled. I just thought about, I thought about just a picture came to my mind as I was writing this of somebody saying, I'll handle it, right? You ever have somebody say that? Like just somebody that's really just disciplined. They're like, you know what? I'll handle it. And you just trust them so much that you know that they're going to do what? They're going to handle it, right? Listen to me. Jesus handled our sins. He said to the Father, I'll handle it. I'll take care of it. I'll get it done. And he came to this earth, and you know what he did? He handled it. And do you know how much he left of it undone? That's right. He left zero undone. He satisfied God's wrath towards our sin in such a full way 
in such a full way that we can anticipate salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I love Psalm 103, verse 12. I think you read it this morning. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He's not saying as far, he's not saying this many miles. He's just saying that they're, they're gone. And it's interesting because he says, so far has he removed our sins from him? He says he's removed our sins from us. He's wiped it clean. And he's put it so far away that we can't go get it again. Amen? Right? He's taken it out of our control and he's put it into his own control. In every way, in every way, Christ Jesus has delivered us from our sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Blotting out just simply means this. Think of a whiteboard, and you just walk up to that whiteboard, and you just erase what's on that whiteboard. And it's just a whiteboard now, isn't it? That's what Jesus Christ did for us. In closing, how should we respond to this? Just really quick. First of all, repentance and faith for salvation. If you're not a believer this morning, the Bible says that you can become a partaker of this forgiveness, this redemption, this putting away, this bearing, this dealing with our sins, that you can become a partaker of that. You can become a benefactor from that if you will place your faith in Christ. That's the only way to do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him The only way that you can become a participant in this extraordinary blessing is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. You cannot develop your own righteous ways to God. You can't manufacture this this deliverance. It is real. It is heavenly. It is spiritual. It is divine. And you can partake of it by being in Christ. It's literally like being in him that we are covered by him. So repentance and faith, place your trust in him, place your dependence on him, place your expectation in him. The last thing in regards to how should we respond to it is this, forsake your sins. Forsake your sins. The Bible says this, the Bible says that if we confess and forsake our sins, Proverbs 28, I believe, then he will show us mercy. When we look at that animal being cast, when we look at that animal being sent out into the wilderness to go into the rugged place, right? We call it the rugged place of God, the place of difficulty, the place of death. That's where he's sent out into, right? When you think about, here is something that has been removed, all the goodness of God, he's been placed on himself, all of mankind's sin, and is he sent into a place of blessing? Is he? Is he sent into a place of understanding and grace and kindness and goodness? No, where is he sent? into a place of death and difficulty. When you see that, when you understand that, when you embrace that Old Testament picture for us, listen, we need to forsake sin. Sin needs to be a battle for every single one of us that we resist every single day of our lives. Not the internal sin that Christ Jesus has, sat, has satisfied, but the external sin, the flesh that, still bear, that we bear. We should be fighting this. Romans 6 and verse 1 and 2 says, 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? They've just been told that they're not under the law, but they're under grace. So should we just continue in sin? He says, by no means. By no means we should continue in sin. And then he goes on to say, you don't get it, do you? You don't understand it. If you knew what sin does to you, if you knew the horribleness of sin, the the death of sin, the danger of sin, the defeat of sin, if, if you knew that, you wouldn't have this attitude towards it. You would fight it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, fighting sin for a Christian is simply natural. If you know something will kill you, you will fight it. You don't go and drink poison because you know it's going to kill you, right? You avoid poison because you know it will kill you. It's just a natural thing to do, amen? If you, if you don't understand that sin will kill you in that same way, and you don't resist it in the same way, you don't avoid it in the same way, there's something missing. It should be natural for us to avoid that which will kill us. Sin is a poison. Sin is danger. Sin is death. And it is natural to avoid it, and it is natural to fight it. It is natural to war against the sins of our flesh. The Lord says for us to mortify the sins of our flesh, to put them to death. Galatians 5 and verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. My challenge to us this morning is know the the price of sin. Know what Jesus Christ has done with our sins. He's fully, fully removed them in a very, very real way. And know what we should do in response to that. Don't just walk through. I was, let me share with you just for a moment. Personally, I was convicted this week as I was just praying about some things and the Lord convicted my heart about what am I doing about those things. It's like I was sitting there praying, God, deliver me from this. God, set me free from this. God, make me this. And the Lord said to me, well, what are you doing about it? Do you, are you praying just because, and this, is, this was the conviction that I received. Are you praying just because you know it's the right thing to do? Do you really want to be set free from that? Because what, I'm, what I was convicted by from the Lord is that you're just praying because you know it's the right thing to do. But when you get off of your knees here, what are you going to do to become that thing that you just prayed about? What are you going to do about it? Yeah, the Lord will get us there. The Lord will take us there. But we go. We trust, we depend, and we march. So we think about our sins, and yes, the Lord forgives us and sets us free, but the Bible says that it's still a practical battle. It's still something that we wrestle with in the, in the flesh, on the outside. What are we doing about it? Do we believe what he said? And do we believe enough to act upon it? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessings that we have received in your, in your sacrifice for our sins, Lord Jesus. We pray that you'll help us to experience the freedom that comes from being set free. And um, pray that you bless us for today and throughout this week that these truths would be on our hearts. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.
Just real quick before you go, 11.30 is choir practice. We changed, they changed it from 12.30 to 11.30 this week, so if you wanted to be a part of the Easter choir, or if you are a part of it, I think would be a better way of saying it, please stay, 11.30 is that time. Tonight is Sunday evenings at Grace, it's at 6 o'clock, fellowship till 6.30. Bring a shareable snack if you would like, and then from 6.30 to 7.30 is Bible studies. So come and be involved tonight. It was a real blessing last week. Lord bless you.